This episode of Return to Tradition was brought to you by the Saint Maker Catholic Life Planner Toolkit, a resource using Catholic wisdom and modern science to help you achieve that sanctity God is calling you to. Thousands of Catholics are on the Saint Maker journey, and you can join them with a 90-day risk-free trial offer backed with a 100% refund guarantee. Go to www.thesaintmaker.com forward slash return to tradition to learn more and use promo code return to tradition to save 10%. A few weeks ago, Benedict XVI released a short letter that itself seems unremarkable in most details, except that it praises the changing of the way the church views itself and the relationship of the church has to the secular world, especially after the council, which that conception is core to the problems we see today with Francis and assisting secular rulers in remaking the world in their own demonic image. Benedict XVI in that letter praised the changes made at the council that made this possible. I dismissed the letter initially when it came out because it was very short and talking about an error of Benedict XVI always seems to get you in trouble around here because people tend to have an idealized image of him. But now Vigano has chimed in with a much longer letter correcting Benedict's error, which now provides us an opportunity to take a look at both the Benedict XVI and Vigano letters, the debate they've caused, and see what the actual arguments are. Benedict's letter was written for Father Dave Pivanka, president of the Franciscan University of Steubenville, in early October. When it was first released, many thought it was sort of a smokescreen, not actually written by Benedict, but written by someone for Francis with Benedict's name attached to it. It's demonstrable that Benedict wrote it because he has a long history of actually saying these things, and Vigano does that here. I have Vigano's response to the letter in full, but I'm going to begin with Benedict's letter, which is much, much shorter than Vigano's letter. Benedict's letter reaffirms and defends one of the most egregious errors of Vatican II, namely the reorienting of the Catholic Church and its relationship to the world, its ecclesiology, how it envisions itself, specifically in the concept of freedom of religion, which had been formally condemned by the Church prior to the Council. Benedict states that the medieval Church had made some egregious error and adopted a misconception of its role in the world and was clinging to power when in reality, the church had always fought for freedom of religion, according to Benedict. Now, that claim is nonsense and modernist reasoning. In fact, it's classic modernist reasoning, but Benedict makes the argument here. And one note before I begin, Benedict's letter is actually less dense than Vigano's by a country mile. Vigano's writings aren't typically all that dense, but sometimes they are. And in this case, his letter is actually pretty dense as he explores concepts from St. Augustine and the teachings of the church. More on that in a couple of minutes, though. Now, Benedict XVI defending the, mo the modern role of the church in the world as it was born in Vatican II follows now. Dear Father Pavanka, it is a great honor and joy for me that in the United States of America, at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, an international symposium is dealing with my ecclesiology, thus placing my thinking and effort in the great stream in which it has moved. When I began to study theology in January 1946, no one thought of an ecumenical council. When Pope John XXIII announced it, to everyone's surprise, there were many doubts as to whether it would be meaningful, indeed whether it would be possible at all, to organize the insights and questions into the whole of a conciliar statement, and thus to give the Church a direction for its further journey. In reality, a new council proved to be not only meaningful, but necessary. For the first time, the question of a theology of religions had shown itself in its radicality. The same is true for the relationship between faith and the world of mere reason. Both topics had not been foreseen in this way before. 
This explains why Vatican II at first threatened to unsettle and shake the church more than to give her a new clarity for her mission. In the meantime, the need to reformulate the question of the nature and mission of the church has gradually become apparent. In this way, the positive power of the council is also slowly emerging. My own ecclesiological work was marked by the new situation that arose from the church in Germany after the end of the First World War. If ecclesiology had hitherto been treated essentially in institutional terms, the wider spiritual dimension of the concept of the church was now joyfully perceived. Romano Gardini described this development with the words, quote, a process of immense importance has begun. The church is awakening in souls. Thus, body of Christ became the support concept of the church, which consequently in 1943 found its expression in the encyclical Mystici Corporis. But with its officialization, the concept of the church as the mystical body of Christ had at the same time passed its peak and was critically reconsidered. In this situation, I thought and wrote my dissertation on people and house of God and Augustine's doctrine of the church. The great Augustinian Congress held in Paris in 1954 gave me the opportunity to deepen my view of Augustine's position in the political turmoil of the time. The question of the Civitius Dei, the city of God, seemed to be finally settled at that time. The dissertation of H. Schultz on belief and unbelief in world history, grown up in Harnack's school and published in 1911, had shown that the two cities, the city of God and the city of man, did not mean any corporate bodies, but rather the representation of the two basic forces of belief and unbelief in history. The fact that this study, written under the direction of Harnack, had been accepted at summa cum laude and in itself secured it a full measure of approval. Moreover, it fit into the general public opinion, which assigned the church and its faith a beautiful but also harmless place. Whoever would have dared to destroy the beautiful consensus could only be considered obstinate. The dream of 410, the capture and sack of Rome by the Visigoths, profoundly shook the world of the time, and also Augustine's thinking. Of course, the city of God is not simply identical with the institution of the church. In this respect, the medieval Augustine was indeed a, f a fatal error, which today, fortunately, has been finally overcome. But the complete spiritualization of the concept of the church, for its part, misses the realism of faith and institutions in the world. Thus, in Vatican II, the question of the church and the world finally became the real central problem. With these considerations, I only wanted to indicate the direction in which my work has led me. I sincerely hope that the International Symposium of, at Franciscan University of Steubenville will be helpful in this struggle for a right understanding of the church and the world in our time. Yours in Christ, Benedict XVI. It's pretty revealing that Benedict says that St. Augustine's formulation of the city of God as the mystical body is an error, and more so revealing that his statement of the church today, working with the world powers, was based on a popular consensus of the time, and that somehow makes it right is the implication. And that popular consensus of the time came from the 1940s and 50s, and yes, persists today, a conception that requires the church to functionally renounce her claims to being the church of Christ in the one true religion. Instead, we get a different conception, which Vigano explains that while Benedict didn't really touch on the error from Vatican II of freedom of religion, Benedict's conception of the role of the church in the modern world requires embracing that error and helping promulgate it. And in so doing, Vigano finds himself in an odd place, standing in opposition to Benedict XVI on a matter of theology and philosophy. Usually, he keeps Francis and his henchmen as his targets, and you may be asking, why does Vigano feel like he needs to correct Benedict? But the answer is pretty straightforward. Benedict's conception of the role of the church is, in fact, an error. 
and it's an error that is in opposition to the church's own classical understanding of itself that existed all throughout its history until just prior to Vatican II. And that conception has helped cause the chaos we see in the world today. The church has, according to Vigano, willingly made itself irrelevant and complicit on the world stage. Instead of offering meaningful resistance to the increasing evils we see all around us, most manifest in our time in the evils of 2020 and 2021, as well as in the James Martin program being foisted on all societies across the world by secular rulers at this time, and in the Green program made manifest in Francis's demonic work, Laudato Si. These errors go back to the role of the church in the world, which was so radically changed at the council that Vigano states that what we're seeing is functionally Benedict admitting to a break or discontinuity from the church before the council to what was born at the council. That Benedict himself is admitting that his hermeneutic continuity is nonsense. Plus, it should, should go without saying that by willingly adopting what Vigano calls an irrelevant social position in the world, the church makes it impossible to meaningfully resist these errors of the secular world and often finds itself complicit in their growth. One needs only to look to the German Synod for proof of that. But from here, we go to Vigano's letter. It's much longer and is more complicated, but I have distilled the essence of it for you there. So without further ado, the letter of Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, correcting Benedict XVI. De hoc mundo, the secularization of authority as a premise to religious freedom and ecumenical dialogue theorized by Vatican II by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. The wound inflicted by the Second Vatican Council on the ecclesial body, and subsequently on the entire social body, is far from healed after 60 years, and is indeed becoming gangrenous with very serious damage under the eyes of all. The enthusiastic and self-congratulatory tones with which the Bergolian Sanhedrin praises the council cannot erase the ruin it has brought to the church and to souls. In my previous comment on the self-referentiality of the quote-unquote conciliar church, I highlighted some crucial aspects of this identity crisis, to which an element that I consider fundamental in my understanding the subversive nature of the council has been recently added. I am referring to the letter that Benedict XVI sent to the rector of the Franciscan University of Steubenville on the 7th of October last. I wanted to tackle this theme in great, greater depth. Examining Ratzinger's text is indispensable for identifying the ideological premises and methods of practical fulfillment of the revolution inaugurated by Vatican II on the doctrinal, moral, liturgical, and disciplinary front of the Catholic Church. I use the expression revolution inaugurated by Vatican II on purpose because it now seems clear to me that the intolerable excesses that Jorge Mario Bergoglio has indulged in for almost 10 years are nothing more than the consistent application in the ecclesial sphere of the principle of permanent revolution theorized in the social sphere by Marx, Engels, and Trotsky. The idea of permanent revolution arises from the observation of the ideologues of Bolshevism, that the proletariat was not enthusiastic about communist methods, and that if class struggle was to spread throughout the world, it was necessary to force it by authority and make it irreversible, because only in the revolution does renewal take place, which moves the subversive action against the social order. 
A similar way of proceeding has been adopted by the Bergoglian Church, since the conciliar revolution is not welcomed with enthusiasm by the quote-unquote Catholic proletariat. The Central Committee of Santa Marta resorts to what Lenin calls, quote, transcription of the revolution, extending the mentality of the Vatican II also in those doctrinal areas to which initially none of its proponents would have ever dared to put a hand. Hence, the Synod of Synodality, that is the establishment of a sort of, quote, permanent council, or rather of, quote, permanent updating, which promotes alleged instances, instances of the base, the ecclesial, ecclesial correspondent of the proletariat, such as the diaconate and the, quote, radical inclusion of divorcees, concubinaries, those in poly relationships, those in James Martin couples, the with adopted children and members of the James Martin Brigade. It will be noted that these requests, all totally inadmissible from a doctrinal and moral point of view faithful to the magisterium, do not constitute a spontaneous and truthful picture of what the clergy and faithful are asking from the supreme authority of the church, but the fraudulent fiction of the Bergoglian propaganda, which has come to use real falsifications imposed by Bergoglio along the lines of the maneuvers already experienced at the previous synod on the family, which gave birth to the heretical monstrum called Amoris Laetitia. And even in this case, reality is mystified to force it into line with one's own dystopian thought with the presumptuous idea of having a better solution than the one the millennial wisdom of the church or the will of its founder wanted to have. We are dealing with mass manipulation applied in the ecclesial field with the techniques of the worst totalitarian regimes adopted today, both by secular rulers with the uh, farce of 2020 and the ecological transition and by the Bergoglian sect allied and supported of the 2030 movement. The letter of October 7th by Brent Bratzinger exposes what Benedict XVI had already stated in his speech to the German federal parliament on September 22nd, 2011. The first formulation of the critique of medieval Augustinianism, however, it is constituted by the dissertation People and House of God in the Augustinian doctrine of the church held in Paris in a distant 1954 on the occasion of the Augustinian Congress. Recalling an idea developed by the Harnack School, Ratzinger states, quote, the two civitats did not dictate any corporate body, but rather the representation of the two fundamental forces of belief and disbelief in history. Civitas Dei, that is the city of God, is not simply identical to the institution of the church. In this sense, the medieval Augustine committed a fatal mistake, which today, fortunately, has been definitively overcome. End quote. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The theme dealt with by the dissertation and quickly hinted at by the letter is that of the ecclesiological doctrine of the mystical body, which, according to the author, was exhausted with the encyclical mystici corporis of Pius XII. In the late 1950s, and with the pontiff's illness, the rerum novarum cupidatis reappeared of progressive theologians for whom the supernatural dimension of the church was too spiritual and therefore had to be replaced with the more seductive Augustinian phrase of, quote, people of God. 
easily interpretable both in an ecumenical key due to its inclusion of our elder brothers and of the old law, and in a democratic key for possible sociological and political developments. Obviously, this ideological setting reveals the modernist background, perfectly consistent with the thought of Harnack and his pupil. It will not escape that this theme of the 25-year-old Ratzinger will also come to be treated at the council, and therefore it is not surprising the, the pride with which the Pope Emeritus refers precisely to the themes that were decisive in his theological formation and in his ecclesiastical career and which are practiced by the successor. Joseph Ratzinger's philosophical approach is essentially Hegelian, therefore imbued with, quote, absolute idealism. Following the theme of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. In this case, between the Catholic thesis of the mystical body and the progressive antithesis of the people of God, Vatican II in the post-conciliar period would have ended up welcoming the synthesis theorized precisely in the 1954 dissertation of Christ in which Christ gives himself to the faithful as a body and transforms it into his own body. A bold thesis on closer inspection, which risks confusing the substantial difference between the body of Christ truly present in its entirety in the Eucharistic species and the body of Christ mystically realized by the union of the living members of the church with her divine head. This confusion would then have allowed not a few progressive theologians or holy heretics to wink at the Protestants, thanks to the imprecise wording of body of Christ. It would also have given Francis the opportunity to appropriate the daring pauperistic Eucharistic metaphors of Renero Cantalamesa, who defines the poor as the, quote, true body of Christ, whose, quote, real presence would be realized among those who, welcoming them, welcome him. The problem that arises is complex and articulated. It consists of two aspects, one ad intra, relating to what the, quote, conciliar church is and wants to be. The other, ad extra, relating to her role in the world and relations with other religions. The ad intra aspect touches the nature of the institution, trying to deconstruct it in a democratic and synodal key under the false pretext of a rediscovered, quote, wider spiritual dimension to the detriment of dogma. The ad extra aspect implies an ecumenical approach to the world, dialogue with sects and false religions, the renunciation of the evangelization of peoples, and its replacement with an ecological and philanthropic message without dogma and without morality. The error of the, quote, medieval Augustinian, according to the emeritus, would consist in having wanted to identify the Civitas Dei with the visible church. While it is evident that this is valid as a model for Christianity, for Christianity that is, that transnational society in which laws and the regulations carry out the psalmist's wishes, Beatus populus cujus dominus deus ejus, see Psalm 143, verse 15. The doctrine teaches us that precisely because of its earthly dimension, the militant church is at the same time holy as the heavenly Jerusalem and sinful in its members, infallible in its magisterium, and fallible in its ministers. Nor is it true that St. Augustine or his medieval commentators indicated the Civitas Diaboli, the city of the devil, in the state. On the contrary, they recognize a providential role in the economy of salvation and the need for civil authority to conform not only to natural law, but also to the Catholic magisterium. If there is a Civitas Diaboli, a city of the devil, recognizable for its ontological evil, it must be identified in the uh, current, ru current ruling elite and in all those equally transnational organizations that work for the establishment of a synarchy. The Bergolian sect is no exception, and it is no coincidence that it is an ally and supporter of these subversive criminals. Another very serious theological error which adulterates the true nature of the church lies in the essentially secular foundations of conciliar ecclesiology, which seek to adopt objective reality to its own ever-changing ideological scheme. 
I use the term seculars because it seems clear to me that this vision is totally devoid of a supernatural gaze, that all-encompassing gaze that knows how to earthly realize subspecie eternitatis, not for mere intellectual speculation, but because it is animated by theological virtues. In the nonsense of these intellectuals, a disheartening lack of passion, of guts, of blood emerges. It is all theoretical, all constituted to aseptically frustrate the redemption and cancel the Ordo Christianus appropriating the Orwellian methods of cancel culture. This error insinuated in the text of Vatican II, and in particular in Dignitatis Humanae for religious freedom, and in Nostratate for relations with non-Christian religions, and that of our elder brothers specifically, places the, quote, conciliar church in deliberate discontinuity with the Catholic Church. For the first time in the words of Benedict XVI, which states, quote, it was about the freedom to choose and practice religion, as well as the freedom to change it as fundamental rights of human freedom. Precisely by virtue of its most profound reasons, such a conception could not be extraneous to the Christian faith, which had entered the world with the claim that the state could not decide on the truth and could not demand any type of worship. The Christian faith claimed freedom for religions, religious conviction and for its practice and worship, without thereby violating the law of the state in its own order. Christians prayed for the emperor, but did not worship him. From this point of view, it can be affirmed that Christianity, with its birth, brought the principle of freedom of religion to the world, end quote. The misunderstanding is based on the double meaning attributed to the term freedom of religion. In the Catholic sense, it indicates the freedom of the baptized person to profess the true faith publicly and without obstacles on the part of the state. In the modernist one, it refers to the abstract freedom of any believer to have the same rights and the same freedom recognized by the state. Another misunderstanding arises when one considers indifferently the state which recognizes particular rights and privileges to the church compared to the state which professes a false religion or declares itself, quote, secular, prohibits the profession of the true religion or equates it with any other cultus. The church has always tried over the centuries to prudently reconcile its rights with different situations of nations in which Catholicism was not tolerated or was persecuted. Provoking anti-Catholic rulers to persecute their faithful would be a reckless or imprudent act. Nonetheless, in the name of freedom of religion, there arose by Vatican II, it was the hierarchy itself that asked the nations such as Spain or Italy to renounce recognizing it as a state religion, modifying the concordats and repealing the privileges that centuries of Catholicism they had legally recognized. From this point of view, it is therefore improper to affirm that Christianity, with its birth, brought the principle of freedom of religion to the world. Indeed, due to its diversity, it had to face the persecution and martyrdom of its own faithful. The first Christians did not ask to admit the Holy Trinity in the Pantheon, but to be left free to profess their own monotheism that so amazed the Romans. And this freedom of religion they claimed for themselves, certainly not for the pagans. It seems that we forget that the church is the owner of rights that derive directly from God, and that it is up to the state to recognize and protect them, not for a purely quantitative question, but because the Catholic religion is objectively true and socially indispensable to the pursuit of the common good. In this regard, it is worth mentioning Leo XIII, who said, quote, If there is a remedy for the evils of the world, it can only be a return to Christian life and customs. This is a solemn principle, that in order to reform a society and decay, it is necessary to bring back the principles that gave it its being. The perfection of every society is placed in the effort to reach its goal, so that generating principle of the motions and the social actions is the same that generated the association. Therefore, to deviate from the primitive purpose is corruption. Returning to it is salvation, end quote. The fact that the state can deny the recognition of these rights is accidental, and the church can also decide not to impose itself, but it is not up to her to claim rights for those who so err. 
while the sole purpose of ingratiating themselves with him or showing of an ecumenical zeal that is totally alien to her mission. You, the falsification of reality to make a false idea true. On closer inspection, traditional thought is much more attentive to the role of people who hold institutional positions, popes, kings, prelates, and rulers, faithful and subjects, than to the abstract concept of the institution. Because the Lord died to save our souls, not legal entities, and because the church has a task of converting all peoples, including the rulers of nations, so that even the role they play is enlivened by grace and can contribute to the greater good of the people they govern. The fan, this phantom, quote, medieval Augustine made no mistake, neither in pointing to the supernatural paradigm, which the earthly authorities, both spiritual and temporal, must conform to, nor in theorizing the subordination of civil power to religious power, both subject to that of God. The fatal error was rather committed on the strongly ideologicalized front of ecclesiastical neo-modernism and political progressivism, whose followers try to attribute to political Augustinianism a doctrinal formulation, according to them, which does not correspond to the message of the first centuries. St. Augustine never claimed that the authority of the state is somehow detached from the true religion. Instead, he affirms the Bishop of Hippo, quote, We consider Christian emperors happy if they exercise power with justice. If in the midst of the praise of the flatterers and the servile bows of the courtiers, they do not become proud, and if they remember that they are men, they place power at the service of God's majesty to extend the worship of him. If they fear they love and honor God. If they more if if they love more the kingdom than him in which they are not afraid of having rivals, if they're weighted in the application of the penalty and inclined to indulgence, if they use the penalty only for the need to administer and defend the state, not vent the hatred of rivalries, if they use indulgences not to leave the violation of the law unpunished, but in the hope of correction. If they compensate for a severe decision which they are often forced to make, with the meekness of compassion and munificence. If lust is contained in them, the more likely it is to be uncontrolled. If they prefer to dominate the ugly passions more than many peoples, and if they have in this way, not out of lust for feudal glory, but out of love for eternal happiness. If they do not neglect to offer the true God the sacrifices of humility, clemency, and prayer for their sins. Indeed, it is not possible for a society made up of persons who are individually have the moral duty to recognize divine revelation and to obey the commandments of God and, and the authority of the church to shirk the same duty. Just as it is not true that the presence of other religions, numerically relevant regardless of the aberration of the doctrines they teach, can legitimize any attitude of resigned acknowledgement of the marginalization of the one true religion, especially when this loss of consent and of support from the state and society is mainly due to the abdication of the Catholic hierarchy on the basis of conciliar deviations. The formulization of St. Augustine, which does not end in De Civitatis Dei, the city of God, but finds ample orthodox clarification in the entire corpus of his writings, must be read in accordance with sacred scripture, the Catholic magisterium, errors, moreover, the vicarious vision of authority. That was proper to the people of Israel itself, whose kings were representatives of the authority of God, like the Christian monarchs, starting with Byzantium. The sacredness of civil authority inherited from the Greco-Roman civilization was so deeply rooted in the Christian world that it also assumed ceremonial connotations proper to the sacred order. Think of the anointing with chrism or the liturgical vestments of the Eastern emperor and of the czars of the great bear of the East to the coronation ritual of the Holy Roman emperor and to the prelate functions of the Doge of Venice. 
but also in the Italy of the municipalities, apparently presented as more secular than the monarchies. The concept of the res publica ordered good was developed in the Middle Ages in coherence with the faith and exemplified by Ambrosio Lorenzetti in the frescoes of the allegory of good government in the Palazzo Publico of Siena. Artificially separating the harmony and hierarchical complementarity between spiritual authority and temporal authority was an unfortunate operation that created the premise, whenever it was realized, of tyranny or anarchy. The reason is all too evident. Christ is king both of the church and of the nations, because all authority comes from God. See Romans chapter 13, verses 1. Denying that the rulers have the duty to submit to the lordship of Christ is a very serious mistake, because without the moral law, the state can impose its will regardless of the will of God and therefore subverting the divine word of Civitas Dei, the city of God, to replace it with arbitrariness in the infernal world of the, the city of the devil. And here we understand how both Civitas constitute a model to strive for, and not an actual reality without abstruse spiritualizations or crude realisms. We also understand how behind these purely intellectual speculations lies that idealist approach of Hegelian origin, which arises from the desire to create a fictitious reality, to be opposed to that desire by God, indeed to impose a Promethean alternative to the passion of the Savior, which scandalizes precisely because of the redemptive cross, and the fact that in the economy of redemption the cross is a royal throne, regnavit ad ligno Deus. To believe that the world cannot be Christian and to do without God by surviving itself is a hellish and blasphemous chimera. On the other hand, those who wanted to give a theological patina to the secular state as a necessary consequence of the freedom of religion, theorized for individuals, had to necessarily deny the doctrinal premises of scripture, the fathers, and the magisterium, appealing to an alleged corruption of the true Christian message from medieval thinkers. As can be seen, doctrinal media deviation is always based on lies, historical falsification, and ignorance of the interlocutors on whom one wishes to impose one's errors. The consequences are devastating and visible to all. If a societas perfecta is not required to recognize the Lord as its sovereign, this must necessarily also apply to the earthly church, whose hierarchy can therefore decide to exercise its authority to simply maintain power and not within the well-defined boundaries established by its divine founder. It is no coincidence that the post-conciliar period did everything to erase the doctrine of the kingship of Christ, also tampering with the liturgical text of the feast established by Pius XI in 1925 with encyclical Quas Primus for this purpose. Ratzinger speaks of, quote, my ecclesiology, affirming that neither the church can call itself the Civitas Dei, the city of God, nor can it presume to still consider the doctrine that Pius XII defined in the encyclical Mystici Corporis of 1943. The Emeritus writes, quote, but the complete spiritualization of the concept of the church, for its part, lacks the realism of faith and its institutions in the world. Thus, in Vatican II, the question of the church and the world finally became the real central problem so central to modify Catholic doctrine in order to appear a la page, dialoguing, inclusive, philanthropic. But it was precisely the loss of its role as domine gentium that led the, quote, conciliar church to a renounced marginal position of social irrelevance. It is a pretium sanguinis, which it stained itself by betraying the mandate of Christ and allowing itself to be polluted by the ideas of the world. And if the church up to Pius XII had the city of God as its model and considered as itself the mystical body of Christ, despite the weakness of its members, it seems that in recent decades the model which inspired the proponents of Vatican II is rather that of the city of the devil, judging by the support that the Holy See lends to the ideology of the rulers, to the neo-Malthusian delusions of the green economy. 
of human augmentation and of the whole James Martin ideo uh, ideology and repertoire. Signed Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano on the 30th of October, 2022, on the Feast of Christ the King. And there you have it, possibly the longest video I've done covering news items in some time. The essential takeaway is this. Vigano's basic message is that Benedict was part of the problem and continues to defend the status quo. Benedict has, over the years, released various statements defending Francis's actions on the world stage, and many try to say that he didn't write those statements himself, largely due to people really not understanding that Ratzinger was part of the problem at the council. And, I mean, he was probably the best of the conciliar popes in terms of the war being waged on tradition, but that's not saying a lot. The main difference being that Ratzinger has never been hostile to much of Catholic tradition in its various forms. He just envisioned the changes after the council as being in continuity with the church before the council, and that those changes were a return to a misconception of its roots in many cases. Well, Francis rarely makes such claims. Vigano in that letter cited Ratzinger's own addresses from the 1940s and his dissertation written in the 1950s to make the point that Benedict really does and always has supported the way the church operates in the world today, far more relevant as a social force than it had been in the past, advocating for all religions to have freedom, which stands, frankly, in opposition, stark opposition, to the church's teaching on the matter. Do with that what you will. Curious what you thought of this. Was it a bitter pill to swallow? Was Vigano right? Was he wrong? The letters are both available in a special show notes today at returntotradition.org. So go to my site and you'll find both of them linked there to the original sources. To read the Vigano one, you'll need some kind of translating extension. Let me know in the comments what you thought of all this, though. And like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. Is this sharing this on social media? That helps a lot as well. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.